um, verse 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfil to the Lord the oath you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Thank you, Rachel. Ashes prayed. Rachel's read. Let's continue. We'll find ourselves, don't we, in Matthew chapter 5. Probably the best, uh, um, best known sermon that's ever been preached, called the Sermon on the Mount. It's well known by that title. Jesus calls his listeners, doesn't he, in it, to a radical life in response to his radical life. Now, of course, saying that term radical kind of like raises our hackers a little bit, doesn't it? Because radical or fundamental are hardly associations we like to foster at present. We associate radical with those radicalized few who would partake in those very cowardly acts of the last week, those barbaric acts that we've seen uh, within Paris. But let me say, I don't think Jesus is any less radical here in Matthew 5. His teaching is as fundamentally distinct from the surrounding culture as a jihadist teaching is today. The teaching that led individuals to kill 129 people in France last weekend, yes, we acknowledge is a very radical teaching. But the jihadists is, is fundamentally distinct from our culture. They are radi- radical because of their hatred. Their hatred of Western culture. And their desire to kill and destroy a way of life. That is, what, that is why they are radical. But the teaching of Jesus here is, I would say, equally radical. But we should neither water it down, fearing sensitivities of a bruised and nervous population, nor should we be unclear. Jihadists are radical and fundamental in their hatred and violence, but Christians should be as radical in their love, in their peace, and in their purity. Being radically different from the majority around us, following a fundamental teaching is not wrong in and of itself. It utterly depends, of course, on the content of that radical teaching. And so have a look at it so far. Look at the the kind of the radical nature of what Jesus is saying here. Just turn to the beginning of chapter 5 and we'll refresh our minds. He calls his followers to a meekness. He calls them to hunger and thirst or righteousness in verse 6. He calls them to be merciful in verse 7. To be pure in heart, verse 8. To be peacemakers, verse 9. You see, people of God's kingdom ought to be radically different Fundamentally, because we see in verse 3, because they're poor in spirit. That is, they see the poverty of their own hearts and their lives, and they recognize without God and his loving intervention into their life, they're deserving of eternal justice before him. We see that the poor in spirit, theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, they're the ones who are heaven bound because they are low in their understanding of themselves, they see Jesus. They see his perfect life. 
that fulfill every element of the Old Testament law we saw a few weeks ago. They see his substitutionary death on a cross that has been offered to us to take all that eternal justice that we deserve. They see his life-giving resurrection that offers life beyond the grave with God in all of his goodness and kindness. Not facing that justice we deserve. Kingdom people, you see, they are poor, but they, they have the humility to acknowledge that they need Jesus. That they cannot do without Jesus today and forevermore. Kingdom people, you see, respond to that radical ultimate love with a radical love themselves. And Jesus has simply been spelling out what that looks like for Christians, for kingdom people. We're to be radically salty and lighty people. That, that little phrase is going to stick with us. Thanks, Ash, for, for years, I'm sure. Um, it, that is a preservative in a decaying world. A light in a darkening world. They're kind of fairly generic things. But then Jesus uses six illustrations. Practically looking at what this will look like in everyday life. They are actually six corrections to the thinking of people of the time. Now, we've looked at the first three. Look at down at verse 21 to verse 26. He tackles the issue of anger. Speaking of murder there, he doesn't dismiss the Old Testament law again. Rather, what does he do? He sets the bar so high, doesn't he? Verse 27 to verse 30. Jesus secondly turns to that issue of lust and adultery. Again, the standard was frightening, wasn't it? We saw that last week. And then in verse 31 and 32, Jesus turns to that very difficult and personal issue of divorce, which... I thought Ash dealt with so sensitively and brilliantly last week. And if you haven't heard that talk, please do listen to it off the website or on the podcast. And you'll notice that each of the six subjects which Jesus will be referring to here, he begins in the same little way. Look what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said or it was said. Each of the issues are tackled structurally in a similar way as well. But most importantly, each are radical. Each are challenging and each are to be applied to all of our hearts here today in response to what Christ has done for us. Now this week, we turn to this fourth subject, the illustration of kingdom living that Jesus gives here. And he turns to the subject of oaths, vows. Simply put, his challenge is about telling the truth. And be warned, I've put it on your sheets, the outline there. This is a radical truthfulness. But why? Why is this so radical? Mainly, I think, because Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, be truthful when it works for you. He doesn't say that, does he? Or, you know, he doesn't speak to a, a kind of a pragmatic truthfulness. And we can so often see that in our kind of casual conversations, can't we? You say to a friend, oh, by the way, I'll see you at eight tonight. But then something else crops up, which is better and works for you. And you think that'd be easier. Well, no. You kind of, you've promised something. The truthfulness of your words has come out, but then you feel it can just be easily ignored. Let's be clear, Jesus isn't encouraging that kind of pragmatic truthfulness here. We see it all around us. 
And maybe if you're anything like me, you see it in yourself as well. Jesus also doesn't say here, this is why it's so radical, he doesn't say, be truthful when it makes you feel good or when it profits you in some way, whether that's in politics, the business life, or even in relationships. The truth, as we know, can be massaged. It can be embellished. Sometimes we can justify it, even with a kind of a, a greater good will come from it if we don't kind of tell all the truth. If we think that way, I think we will find this a great challenge today because this teaching is radical. Perhaps we might understand how radical this teaching is when we see the contrast to the world around us. Jesus is calling us to a radical truthness, and I've put it there on your outline, in a deceptive world. Now you're probably thinking, oh, you're being a bit harsh here, Andy, aren't you? A bit, bit judgmental. It's not really that bad out there. I wonder. Can we see it around us? In the political world, for example, I know many of you work uh, in politics. Doesn't it appear to be normal to speak truth when it is profitable? Promises are made to get votes, but what do the words of a manifesto really mean today? I mean, the one in the news and the headlines at the moment is the, the issue of child tax credits. A promise was made, but now the government feel that they can go back on their promise to not go through with the promise that they have made. It is no wonder that politicians are viewed with such cynicism today. On a bigger scale, I found this in my reading this week, there have been over 30 treaties that American presidents have signed with other nations since World War II. The same would be true for the UK, but I don't know the exact figure, and I couldn't find the stats for the UK, but I found them for America. So one commentator simply had investigated this, and he wrote, not one treaty is still upheld in its entirety. Nations will only honour their word when it suits them and their best interests. Politics, he then concluded, was this, said, this, said this. Surely it's just the art of lying. What about in the court? Some of you are lawyers, solicitors and so on. People still ask to swear on a Bible. But we know, don't we, that many do so with the intention of completely being dishonest, of manipulating the truth and deceiving. Now, does all of that seem quite distant to you? You know, you're, you're just at home, you're a teacher, you're whatever, you know, none of this, so it's all out there. What about you and me? I wonder if you find telling the truth easy. I was chatting to a group of church workers about this this weekend. We were away on our staff retreat, a little family of churches called Commission. And I was, I'd done some reading before I got there, and we were just sort of chatting about it. And we were saying, this is tough. We were just recalling how easy it is to embellish a story. I was telling them that my family have a story. You know how you, your families have stories and you kind of, they come out at Christmas time. You all kind of tell it how, how it goes. We have this family story. It's about a sports car and a motorway. I've told it you before. I think you've probably heard it. And I was just recalling to these guys, it's funny how every time that story is recalled, it, it seems to kind of get a little bit bigger. You know, the car gets faster. Every year that someone tells the story, it's extraordinary. Even in preaching, the temptation is there for this. I speak about an event, I use an illustration, I say something awfully wise. 
But the temptation is always to exaggerate, to distort the truth, or fail to mention that I'm quoting some wise scholar. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but I read it um, on the internet, so it must be true. But I quote, a sociological report tells us that on average, we lie over 200 times a day. By that, they mean we embellish, we deceive, and we withhold truth. I guess if you're preachers, you might add another 50 to that. But, you know, we'll we'll see how we go. So what is this radical teaching on truthfulness from Jesus? It comes to a deceptive world. I hope we can acknowledge that. Three points as we go through this passage. You'll see them on your sheets. Three main points. Uh, Before we are going to, we're going to spend a good time applying this to our lives. It's a short passage, so this section won't take too long. Look at it. Jesus reminds us about the use of oaths. We're looking at the Old Testament there. Then Jesus forbids the use of oaths, and we'll make some caveats to why and how. And then Jesus encourages radical truthfulness right at the end in that final verse, with some implications at the end. So firstly, look look down to verse uh, 33. Jesus reminds us about the use of oaths. Let me read verse 33 again. Again, you've heard it that was said to the people long ago. Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. Now, once again, we must be very clear that Jesus isn't just dismissing Old Testament teaching here. Jesus is perfectly summarizing what was thought and understood from the Old Testament. And there are, I think, two clear points here that he's making. Jesus is making it clear... If you remember back to those two small readings that Sunni read in Deuteronomy, he's making it clear and acknowledging that vows and oaths were present within the Old Testament. We saw that in those two small passages. Heard in our first reading, Deuteronomy 10, Fear the Lord your God and serve him, hold fast to him, and take your oath in his name. Oaths were present, they were valid, acknowledged. Even in the name of God, people would swear on God's name that something would happen. But it wasn't just an accepted practice, it was actually encouraged. Second point I think Jesus is making in this first verse here, he's also making it clear that vows and oaths in the Old Testament were not to be made without being able to go through with what you were promising, what you were making an oath about. So that second reading in Deuteronomy 23 says this, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you'll be guilty of a sin. And then he goes on and said, better, essentially, if you refrain from making a vow, you'll not be guilty. So don't make a vow, in a sense. He's saying that. The instruction's simple. If you make one, stick to it. But easier if you don't make a vow promise at all. So you see, Jesus is reminding his listeners here about the clear teaching throughout the Old Testament about vows and oaths. He assumes they know that they understand. But the critical thing here in our passage today is that he knows the reality. He knew the abuse that was occurring amongst all the people of God, amongst the rabbis as well. It was an accepted norm that you could swear on pretty much anything and it didn't really have to be binding. Now, it sounds comical, but literally people were making kind of vows and oaths on any object that they could see or, you know, could touch or anything. I swear on my beard that I will be there at eight. 
you know, it's ridiculous. But people were, that's actually in what's called the Mishnah, as a Jewish teaching, that you could swear on your beard. I make a vow to you on my mother's grave and also her donkey that I will buy that carpet from you later on today. People were swearing on all sorts of things. The situation was ridiculous. And hence why Jesus, it's kind of like a little brackets in verse 34 to 36, kind of spells out what was happening, what it looks like. And here we get to our second point. Jesus forbids the use of oaths. Verse 34, I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. So you can see in verse 36 how silly things have become. As I said, the, the Jewish collection of writings called the Mishnah had, had a whole chapter actually dedicated to vows and oaths. What you could make a vow on and what you could not. Or if you did, how binding it was and how, binding, how not binding it was. One scholar simply said this, it had produced a profound spiritual schizophrenia. People knew they weren't telling the truth, but equally, they didn't think they were telling a lie. Do you remember as a, as a child, I don't know if you ever did this, uh, but do you ever remember saying to your parents, I'm going to clean my bedroom, but doing so with your fingers crossed behind your back? Well, that is essentially the level we're talking about here. And Jesus' teaching here is kind of radically overturning that kind of oath or vow, making reference to your beard when making a promise, should be no assurance to anyone. And it goes for any object or person that you can, you can make an oath or vow on. Jesus is so clear here, doesn't he? Do not swear an oath at all. The reason? Well, verse 36 is clear, because you have little power to kind of see that through. But also because he's saying God stands behind everything. Everything, the whole creation is God. He is the Lord, and therefore you cannot swear on any object within God's creation without ultimately referring to him. But Jesus goes further. He doesn't just say, don't do this. In Matthew 23, later on, he says, don't do it because it's a sin. And likewise here in verse 37, let's move there, he said... All you need to simply say simply is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And third point there, Jesus commands this radical truthfulness. Similar places in the Bible, James 5.12, for example, says very similar. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. What Jesus is saying here is that the radical nature of his love should produce in those who trust him a radical righteousness and a radical truthfulness. We've seen this spelled out throughout this chapter, chapter 5. And it's the hallmark of being one of God's children, of being heaven-bound. We're to be lighty and salty people, but practically in the realm of speech, we are to be truth-tellers. Kingdom people do not need to swear or make a vow or oath because their word, their word ought to be truth. Now, Jesus' teaching here, again, it doesn't dismiss the teaching of the Old Testament. Rather, it's going above and beyond it. 
The standard is higher. He says, look at it, verse 37. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Now, what are the implications for us? Firstly, I want to make two kind of uh, more technical points before we go to um, very much more practical ones. Firstly, I think we need to be careful we don't make an absolute kind of position here on this. I'll give you a historical example. The, the Reformation Anabaptists, later on the Moravians that came from there, and then later on uh, the Quakers, all of those groups refused to make an oath on anything. Now, I read this uh, this week, and I'm quoting, famously George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, refused to swear on a Bible in court, and he was locked up in jail for not doing it. And so in jail, he wrote this quite brilliant, or he said this quite brilliant response. He says, it's a bit of old language, but you'll kind of get it. You have given me a book here to kiss and to swear on, speaking of the Bible, and this book which ye have given me to kiss says, kiss the son, speaking of Jesus. And the son says in the book, swear not at all. I say as the book says, and ye imprison me. How chance ye do not imprison the book for saying so? Essentially he's saying, if you put me in prison for not swearing on, put the Bible in prison as well. Lock it up. Now, we do not take this position. Let me tell you why, very quickly. We could spend a whole day on this. Simply, I think, one, that Jesus honours an oath made before Caiaphas, or made, Caiaphas makes an oath uh, in Matthew 26. Um, also, this is a, a situation, this is an everyday speech situation which Jesus is correcting. It is not, it's common misuse which he's correcting, not swearing in exceptional circumstances like on a Bible in a court of law. So Caiaphas, in uh, Matthew 26, makes an oath, and, and Jesus honours that. Likewise, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1, or 1 Romans, 9, Romans 1, 9, he swears, making an oath, with God as my witness, Paul says, on a number of occasions. What the point here is that swearing on something, or an oath, is, is permitted. But the point that Jesus is making here is it's, it is just not necessary for truth-speaking Christians in everyday use. Our word ought to be good enough. If we promise something, we should fulfill that. Whether that's, I'll be home at seven for the kids and for the wife or husband or anything else, however small it may be. God's people shouldn't need to firm up their commitment in what they say. Our commitment to truthfulness should be obvious to those around us and the watching world. So we do not take an absolute position. Secondly, we understand this is a common issue, not an exceptional issue. Now here's a big question, and I wish I could spend an hour on this one, but this is an interesting one. Is it okay to lie in exceptional circumstances? It was a massive issue in World War II, wasn't it? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the very famous uh, uh, pastor theologian, wrote uh, a great deal about it. So you have to think, is it okay to deceive, to tell lies against an evil regime in a war 
to gain an advantage. D-Day was essentially a web of lies. Well, Bonhoeffer, who led many people to speak out against the Nazi regime, Bonhoeffer argued that God's standard of truth includes more than merely not lying. Rather, he says, to be true to God in the deepest way means being obedient to God, not merely conforming to the rules, the kind of blind legalism. He believed that there are situations where it's not only morally permissible to lie, but obedience to God requires it. Bonhoeffer lied on a number of occasions. And he, involved, he was involved in deception after deception against the Nazi regime uh, to bring down Hitler. And our gut instinct probably says, yeah, of course, that's the right thing to do. But why? Why? Our intuition that, is, uh, that it is morally permissible to lie in order to save an innocent life is there. But how do we make sense of that ethically? Now, Bonhoeffer argued like this. He said there was a hierarchy of values that is relevant to kind of any of our decision making, whether we speak truth or whether we lie. Truth telling, of course, has a high moral value, he argued. A value which means we ought not to lie in pretty much every circumstance in our, in our lives, unless he argued that a higher value trumped that. And Bonhoeffer's case, there was a higher value, that is, in saving innocent lives. Thus, he argued that lying was morally permissible. Now, it's a big issue, and it's a very short answer. I'd love us to chat about that later if we'd like to. There are other answers as well. So Emmanuel Kant, a very famous uh, theologian, just said, on every and every circumstance, we ought not to lie, but we should tell the truth. So there's an opposing argument as well. Now, what about you tomorrow? You walk into the office. How far should our truth-telling extend? You approach a colleague. You've seen they've had a big weekend. They're looking pretty rough. What do you say? The truth? You look awful. Is that what you should say? Maybe the truth. They do look relatively awful comparing to what they look like on Thursday. Should you speak the truth? Well, surely Ephesians 4.15 is helpful in this. We should speak the truth in love. That is, what is the motivating kind of guidance in the way that we do speak truth? Now, just because the bus turns up for 30 seconds late, should we tell the bus driver, you are 30 seconds late, it is the truth? What is our motivation there? As we saw at the beginning, we live in a world where truthfulness is a cheap commodity. It's a low, a very low moral value. Now, let me just give you another practical example. What can you really believe in the media? Let me think of advertising for a moment. Apparently, if you own a car like mine, a wonderful Volvo, apparently you will be sporty. In the last advert, you will play tennis and you will ski regularly with ladies that are 20 years younger than you and always blonde. Now, you see, language and truthfulness has devolved to such an extent that we accept all of those kind of ambiguities, those exaggerations have become normal. 
We don't expect politicians to be able to fulfill everything that they promise, do we? We don't expect the media to give us an unbiased record of the news and current affairs. It's interesting how they've ignored the, the brutality of the beatings in Bradford over the last week, isn't it? We don't expect the simple yes to mean yes anymore. And we do not expect a simple no to mean no. But what about you? And what about me? What do you embellish in your speech? What truth have you held back for fear of ramifications? All you need to say is simply yes or no. And anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Think of conversations in the office or with friends or with neighbours. Everything is always taller, isn't it? Or bigger or better or more attractive than reality. We went on holiday last week. The sun shone for 25 hours a day. Yeah, I'm embellishing obviously, but you get the idea. Here's another one. Have you ever laughed at a joke that you just don't understand? Why did you do that? Why did you not tell the truth and say, didn't get it? Because you fear the opinion of others? It isn't easy to be truthful, is it? Did you get the joke? No. It's really hard to say that, isn't it? What did you get up to over the weekend? Went to church. That's really hard to say. But it's true. Why is such radical truthfulness so important? I mean, what difference will it really make? That's what we're thinking. Let me say two things as I close. Firstly, the world needs it. Deep down, people long to get away from the pretense and the show. I mean, integrity in speech, it's so attractive, isn't it? And it's so obvious when you see it. Let me give you a family example. If you spot a small lie in a, in a child, now you, you know, I, there's a difference there between just you know, making up a story. And, but you spot a lie, a deception. Can I encourage you, do not let it go. At all. Be very careful because it's a very slippery and very steep slope that will be legitimised by everyone around you. But not by Jesus. The world needs it. Secondly, the church needs it. If we are a body, as Jesus tells us we are, then deceit to anyone is to all. We are members together, unified and united in Christ. And however small the world considers this, truthfulness is critical to the life of a church. How can we foster this in ourselves and the church? Matthew 12, 34 says this, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Our hearts must be full of the truth, with a heart of truth, longing to speak the truth. 
into a community of grace that longs to hear it. Helpful in that is to remember that God hears every word that every single one of us says. And we will have to give an account for every exaggeration, for every embellishment, for every deceit. I think the issue that Jesus is speaking into here is that I think the, the people of God are just kind of thought that oh, Jesus kind of wakes up to what we say when we use the word a vow or an oath. I swear by God. And then, oh, suddenly, Jesus, suddenly God wakes up and goes, oh, I'm listening now. No, he's even listening. In every moment. Even the words that we don't say, he hears. Kent Hughes, one of the commentators I was reading this week, said, Our words are weighted with eternity. I think it's a really helpful reminder. Let's be slow to speak. Slow to make promises that we just know that we cannot keep. Let us be known as a community of truthfulness. Internally and externally. Radically truthful. Let's pray as we close. Just a moment of quiet, maybe to consider our own hearts, our own speech, our own words. Heavenly Father, please do forgive us for those times where we have embellished the truth, whether we have exaggerated, whether we have deceived, held back from stating the truth in love. Lord, I guess we all feel the weight of this. And yet, at the same time, may we know the wonderful, uplifting grace of your sacrifice on the cross, and may that as we hear your word and the spirit works in us, transform our words. May we be a community of radical truthfulness in a very deceptive world. May that be attractive to others. May that be attractive to us as well, as a group, as a church. May we know that this is a place, a secure place, a safe place where truthfulness will be heard, will be appreciated, and will be listened to with ears of grace. Where there are things that we need to speak, where there are truths that need to come out of our lives. Please help us know, all of us, that we can speak them knowing your forgiveness and your love, if we are truly repentant. Amen.